the criteria used to determine who falls beneath the umbrella term military genius has been debated by theorists and historians for centuries. The term is often used to describe commanders who have displayed exceptional skill and talent on the battlefield. However, what constitutes a military genius is subjective, and different scholars have offered varying definitions and criteria for the term. Some common qualities associated with military genius include strategic vision, tactical skill, innovation, creativity, courage, and the ability to inspire and lead troops. Karl von Clausewitz, a Prussian general and military theorist, believed that military genius involved the ability to think critically and creatively, as well as the courage to take calculated risks. He argued that military genius is the capacity for using troops like unto the pieces in a game of chess, and that it required both a deep understanding of strategy and tactics, as well as the ability to improvise in the face of changing circumstances. In his book On War, Clausewitz stressed the importance of the commander's character, stating that his intelligence must be able to penetrate into the unknown, the obscure, and the perplexing, and his resolution must be able to conquer the unforeseen obstacles which obstruct his path. Sun Tzu, a Chinese general and strategist who wrote The Art of War, also made a conscious choice to define the term. He believed that a great commander should possess a range of qualities, including knowledge, cunning, and the ability to inspire his troops. He emphasized the importance of deception, surprise, and intelligence gathering in warfare. Sun Tzu stressed the need for a commander to be flexible and adaptable, stating that in war, the way is to avoid what is strong and to strike what is weak. Notable men who have achieved history's crowning status as military geniuses include Alexander the Great, who conquered much of the known world by the age of 32 using innovative tactics adapted from the Greeks. Julius Caesar typically also makes the lists of military genius for his work expanding the Roman Republic through a series of extensive military campaigns in which he always came up on top. The two men served as inspiration for a young Napoleon Bonaparte who would eventually join them in stature. While there have been many examples of military geniuses throughout history, not every commander deserves the title. Ultimately, the title of military genius depends on a range of factors. Napoleon would add speed to the list, something that some of history's worst regarded commanders lacked. Take, for instance, Lincoln's first commander in the Civil War, George McClellan, who was nicknamed Young Napoleon. He moved so slowly that Lincoln once quipped, if General McClellan does not want to use the army, I would like to borrow it for a time. The Union general delayed for weeks during the Peninsula Campaign, after the Confederates had constructed Quaker guns out of fallen tree logs, painting them to look like gigantic cannons. His delay allowed Confederate General Robert E. Lee to take command of the army and temporarily turned the tide of the war in the Confederacy's favor. 
there would be no delaying Napoleon Bonaparte, the 26-year-old commander of the French Army of Italy. He had just married the woman of his dreams and was set to embark on a campaign which would bestow upon him the title of military genius. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assists in the teaching of history. This episode is the third of seven regarding Napoleon Bonaparte. Episode three, The Little Corporal Unleashed. Although the Directory, the ruling government of France, had ceased the internal war that Maximilien Robespierre had waged against his own people, they expanded upon the revolutionary war against Austria. Although the original purpose for the conflict had been to restore King Louis XVI to the throne, the wars had now turned into one for the survival of each ancient land. Historian Derek McKay explains that the Austrian Habsburgs were determined to prevent the French from expanding their influence. This was particularly true regarding northern Italy, which at the time was a province of Austria. As McKay notes, the Austrians believed that Italy was part of their sphere of influence, and they were not willing to relinquish it without a fight. The conflict was also existential to the French who had begun what historian Ian Davidson framed as an ever-expanding war of conquest in order to pay for an ever-expanding war of conquest. Northern Italy offered the largest potential returns of loot for the French. The Austrians just happened to be in their way. The Directory split their gigantic army of conscripts into three distinct forces, with one advancing towards Vienna from northern Germany another crossing the shared border between French and Austria, and still a third commanded by Napoleon to approach via the enemy's soft underbelly of northern Italy. There are indications that the Italian campaign was initially designed to be a mere sideshow, whose intent was to distract the enemy from the true threats. In reality, however, it became the only game in town against the Habsburgs. In the best-case scenario, Napoleon would be able to cut off the Austrian lines of communication and supply, triggering a domino effect across the entire theater. It would then establish essential French bases within the Alps in order to stage future operations. The eye was clearly on the future, as the campaign was also intended to serve as a training ground for the new generation of French commanders after the prior golden generation had been culled by the Committee on Public Safety. In fact, without a purge, there is little to no chance that at the age of 26, Napoleon would have been granted such an important and prestigious task in the first place. Historian Frank McLinn adds to the mission objectives the additional desire to divert growing unrest at home with a foreign adventure to consolidate the revolution and export its principles, and most importantly, to stop the drain of the French treasury by getting the nation's armies to live off of the soil or by plunder, and thus, in effect, exporting France's military expenses. 
techno genius goes at it alone. McLinn included in his Genghis Khan biography extensive information on the Khan's generals, particularly Jebe and Subadai. The historian tells us that a key to the Mongols' success was that Genghis Khan was not just a military genius. He was also a great judge of character. He recognized talent when he saw it and knew how to put that talent to use. At the onset of the Italian campaign, Napoleon had found his essential lieutenants, many of them geniuses within their own right. The Frenchman also demonstrated that, like the Khan, he was excellent at recognizing talent. The first of his essential lieutenants was Charles-Francois-Marie Sirieur, a 53-year-old veteran who was the son of a mole catcher. His birth status meant that he had begun his service time as a mere volunteer, but rose up the ranks all the way to colonel. He served as Napoleon's chief artillery officer during the Italian campaign. Next was Charles Argerol, a 38-year-old son of a stonemason who had previously deserted the French army at the age of 17. He was serving as a drummer in a French regiment in Corsica at the time that he had become disillusioned with military life. He snuck aboard a ship bound for Constantinople and proceeded to make a living by selling watches on the streets. Rumor, perhaps spread by the general himself, tells of a second job teaching dance class to wealthy elite families. He apparently was so good at it that he was hired to teach the Sultan's daughter how to dance. Now this story does come from the man himself, and thus is likely an exaggeration. Still, if I were to make up such a story, I would have included some salacious details within it to explain why I had to flee Constantinople for Russia. The fact that Argerol didn't include such details makes the story at least plausible. Once in Russia, the French deserter joined the Russian army for a time before eloping with a Greek girl to Lisbon, Portugal. The diverse collection of stories makes this lieutenant one of the most world-aware men in Napoleon's orbit. After all, this Greek girl whom he married in Portugal was the daughter of a Spanish diplomat who had been married to a Russian nobleman at the beginning of the affair. He was restored to the French army through service to Robespierre during the genocide of Vendée. Napoleon was of two minds regarding this lieutenant, at one point referring to him as the bravest man he knew, while later complaining that he lacks discipline and doesn't know how to follow orders. The third son within Napoleon's constellation was another 38-year-old, André Messina. He had begun life as a cabin boy, but had inexhaustible energy on the battlefield, particularly when it came to utilizing terrain to maintain defensible positions. Like Auguru, Masana was known for his strict discipline and a willingness to enforce harsh punishments on soldiers who disobeyed orders. Consequently, he was feared by both his enemy as well as his own troops. The initial meeting with the upstart 26-year-old Corsican, 12 years the junior of Argerol and Messina, and a striking 27 years younger than Surrier. As Napoleon revealed his plans for the Northern Italy campaign, Augerol leaned over to another in the room to proclaim Bonaparte an imbecile. 
By the end of the meeting, however, he had won over the three men, convincing them that he understood the flaws within the Directory's three-pronged approach towards the Austrian War. Winning over the army that he had been tasked to command was his next Herculean task. McLinn writes that, at his headquarters, Napoleon found 37,000 ill-fed, unpaid, and demoralized troops, with which he was supposed to clear 52,000 Austrians out of half a dozen mountain passes between Nice and Genoa. He addressed the troops by acknowledging the facts that he saw before him, telling his men, Soldiers, you are naked, ill-fed. Though the government owes you much, it can give you nothing. Your patience, the courage you have shown admits these rocks are admirable, but they procure you no glory, no fame shines upon you. I want to lead you into the most fertile plains in the world. Rich provinces, great cities will lie in your power. You will find their honor, glory, and riches. It was during this campaign that Napoleon's military philosophy would form, the first guiding principle of which was mobility. Although Napoleon would later quip that God was on the side of the heavier battalions, speed and not a huge plodding force were the reason for many of his victories. He used local intelligence to determine that his best option to break into Italy was to exploit bad blood between the Austrians and the local rulers of the Piedmont. On April 12th, he won his first victory. He followed it up by another successful action the following day before another engagement on April 14th. Over the course of four days, April 19th through the 23rd, he launched three more battles before the Piedmont commander requested a ceasefire. McLinn writes with astonishment that within 10 days, Napoleon was in control of the key mountain passes and had destroyed a superior enemy force piecemeal by rapidity of movement. Napoleon himself, always eager to place himself among history's greatest commanders, wrote that although Hannibal merely crossed the Alps, we turned their flanks. Informing his soldiers of the ceasefire, he stated, Soldiers, in 15 days you have gained six victories, taken 21 colors and 55 pieces of artillery, seized several fortresses, and conquered the richest parts of Piedmont. You have taken 15,000 prisoners and killed and wounded more than 10,000. But he hadn't been sent to bring Piedmont to its knees. And thus, rather than resting on his laurels, he rushed north towards Milan. The city was situated in the Po Valley, with the Alps to its immediate north and the Apennine Mountains to the south. It was well known as an important center of trade, industry, and culture during this age. It was particularly known for its fine clothing, leather goods, perfumes, cosmetics, and luxury goods such as silk and fine woodworking. Controlling this vital center of trade was a necessity for the French in their war against Austria, as to its west was France, and to Milan's east was Austria. The key battle in the fight for Milan occurred alongside the 200-foot Lodi Bridge, 
a heavily fortified and well-defended crossing of the River Adda. Although he could have chosen to ford the swiftly flowing river, Napoleon opted for the more dramatic course of action, beginning the battle for the bridge on May 10, 1796. The French army had been on the move for days, desperately trying to catch up to the Austrians. The weather had been particularly dreadful, and the roads were left muddy and difficult to traverse. But Napoleon was determined to press on, and he knew that crossing the bridge was critical to his success. Unfortunately, the Adda River stood between him and his objective. Worse, the Austrians had positioned their artillery to sweep the bridge with deadly fire as their soldiers stood ready to repel any attack. The standard musket of this era was a 70 caliber weapon. In the right hands, it was capable of picking off an individual at 100 yards. But it also misfired once every six shots, took tremendous effort to reload, and was quite ineffective in the hands of an inexperienced soldier. Which was unfortunately all of them as they were rarely allowed to train with it as armies were reluctant to lose precious ammo during training drills. McLean informs us that only 25% of shots could be expected to hit their target at 225 yards. The number only rose to 60% as close as 75 yards. However, at the whites of their eyes range, the devices became quite deadly. Napoleon knew all of this and thus understood that a frontal assault would be suicide. If he hadn't understood that upon first glance, each of his officers informed him of such. Ultimately, he needed to find a way to outflank the Austrians so that he could take the bridge from the side. Thus, he ordered a small force of cavalry to ride up the river in order to find a ford where they could cross. The cavalry galloped off, the sound of their hooves echoing across the valley. As that was happening, Napoleon ordered his artillery to begin bombarding the Austrians with cannon fire. The French gunners fired shot after shot at the enemy's positions, hoping to create a gap in their defenses. The Austrians responded with their own artillery fire, and soon the air was filled with smoke and the deafening roar of exploding shells. As the long-range duel raged on, the French infantry began their suicidal advance towards the bridge. They were met with a withering hail of musket fire from the Austrian troops, who were well entrenched behind their fortifications. But the French soldiers pressed on, firing their own muskets and charging towards the bridge with bayonets fixed. The fighting was intense, and the battle raged back and forth across the bridge. Men fell on both sides, their bodies tumbling into the churning waters of the Adda. The air was thick with the sound of gunfire and the screams of the wounded, although there were occasions that Napoleon led from the front as Alexander the Great had. He wisely stood behind the artillery for this deadly engagement. Meanwhile, the French cavalry had finally managed to find a ford and was crossing the river, ready to attack the Austrians from the rear. Their arrival happened in the nick of time. The Austrians were caught off guard, and their positions were soon overrun by the French. With the Austrians in full retreat, the French soldiers surged forward, finally taking control of the bridge. The battle was won. 
but at a heavy cost. It was another victory for Napoleon, who had captured 16 artillery pieces, claimed 335 casualties, and took possession of 1,700 Austrian prisoners. At this point in his career, the young general acted with great leniency towards his prisoners of war, offering large groups parole terms which allowed them to return to their homes or to go on and travel to neutral countries under the condition that they would not take up arms against France again. This approach helped to build goodwill among the Italian population that had been forced into the conflict. As one would expect, most of the Italian countryside was exceptionally wary of the French invaders. When he was able to, Napoleon participated in prisoner swaps with his enemies. Such a move allowed him to alleviate the heavy costs that came with large numbers of prisoners, while also allowing him to safely secure the release of his own men. But most importantly for our story, Napoleon identified his victory at Lodi Bridge as a personal turning point, writing that it was only on the evening of Lodi that I believed myself a superior man, and that the ambition came to me of executing the great things which had so far been occupying my thoughts only as a fantastic dream. After Lodi, I no longer saw myself as a mere general, but as a man called upon to influence the destiny of a people. The idea occurred to me that I could well become a decisive actor on our political scene. His men saw the change in him as well, referring to him as Little Corporal for the first time. It was a nickname that he would embrace as a key ingredient of his personality cult, viewing it as a symbol of his close relationship with his troops, as well as his deep commitment to their cause. It has been said that he preferred to be called Little Corporal despite his sensitivity towards his height, rather than any of his official titles that would come later on in life. He even used it in speeches to mock his enemies, once boasting that the kings of Europe have often trembled at the name of the Little Corporal. Soon it became his most enduring and recognizable monikers, and even after his downfall, he remained referred to as La Petite Corporal by many of his supporters. Napoleon entered Milan in triumph on May 15, 1796. Lodi had confirmed his leadership among his men, but the general wasn't so sure to what extent his victories reinforced his standing among the directory. After entering the city, he wrote to a confidant wondering, will this be enough for them? In fact, it was quite too much. Napoleon's racking up of seven quick victories had convinced France's leadership that the little corporal had grown too powerful. It hadn't helped that he had also ruffled feathers by forcibly securing two million livres from them in hard cash in order to pay off the accumulated back pay of his army. The move had been a morale coup, as this was the first time in three years that the army had been paid in hard cash. Rather than ordering him to continue east into Austria, which had been the original plan, 
The Directory instead urged Napoleon south in an effort to place some distance between themselves and the rising hero. He was to secure Genoa, Leghorn, Rome, and Naples, an impossible task. Before departing, Napoleon's army spent a week in Milan, during which he oversaw the most barefaced and systematic looting seen in the area since the Vandals had sacked Rome, giving birth to the modern-day term of vandalism. This looting is at odds with the letters that the general wrote home to the directory, beseeching them to form an independent united northern Italian state. Showing off his new post-Lodi attitude, he wrote to them that he was the only one who could provide the crucible of war that was necessary to unite the provinces. His request was ultimately denied but the directory did enjoy the spoils of his success, as on May 22nd, Napoleon informed them that more than 8 million francs of pilfered gold and silver were headed their way. By July, after he had begun his long trek south, the numbers remitted shot up to 60 million francs of loot. This absurdly high number corresponded with McLinn's thought that Napoleon now had the whip hand, and if the directory wanted to survive, its five members had to keep on the right side of their most successful general. Their time to act in order to stop his rise had passed. Although he was well on his way to becoming a great man, on par with his boyhood idols, Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, Napoleon grew distraught, and perhaps even suicidal while on campaign. For 127 straight days, he wrote to his wife Josephine at least once a day. The love and admiration wasn't reciprocated, as Josephine had immediately proven herself to be a serial cheater. Most of the time, she tossed his letters in the trash, but on occasion, she would open them up in front of her wealthy friends and mockingly read them aloud. To be fair, the little corporal's love letters demand to be made fun of, with Napoleon writing cringy lines such as, A thousand kisses upon your eyes, your lips, your tongue as well as, you must return with Junot, do you hear my adorable one? He will see you, he will breathe the air of your shrine. Perhaps you will even allow him the unique favor of a kiss on your cheek. In that same letter, he then turned his attention to his own desires, asking for a kiss on your heart, and then another a little lower, much, much lower. McLinn informs us that the last two words of that particular love note had been so emphatically underlined that the pen had sliced through the paper. Shortly after Napoleon had left for Italy, Josephine took up at least one new lover, a member of the cavalry named Hippolyte Charles. In May, Napoleon sent three separate messengers to his wife, imploring her to join him in Italy. Each delivered the general's messages 
and at least one of the three went so far as to sleep with her, proving that she was no more faithful to Hippolyte than she was to her husband. To put off her husband's desperate pleas to spend time with her, she was bold enough to lie to him about being pregnant and thus unfit for travel. While he awaited word regarding her plans and the fake child she was carrying, Napoleon attempted to continue moving south from his Milan headquarters. But each time he left for the next conquest, the town from which he was departing rebelled against those he left in charge. He had not yet figured out how Alexander the Great had managed to conquer such large swaths of territory, but like Genghis Khan, he did understand the importance of providing an example to those he sought to rule over. The town of Pavia was the first to serve as an exemplar. He initially called for the death penalty for the entire 300-strong garrison, but stayed their execution in favor of a policy of savage looting in terrorium, meaning that he encouraged his troops to terrorize the civilian population of Pavia. Etchings were made, perhaps commissioned by Napoleon himself, showing the townspeople of Pavia begging Napoleon to stop the looting. The message was received, as the government of Milan put down their own rebellion shortly after Napoleon turned his forces back towards the city to travel up from the dejected city of Pavia. The Italian conquest wasn't all victories for Napoleon. At the village of Vallejo, the little corporal was nearly taken prisoner by an Austrian scouting party. McLinn tells us that he had to bolt over several garden walls wearing only one boot. During the Battle of Rivoli, a scouting party came upon him, forcing him to turn his horse and flee the scene at full gallop, with the Austrians in hot pursuit. The two events were instrumental in Napoleon forming the Guides, an elite corps of Roman-styled Praetorian Guard, the minimum height of which was 5'7", two inches greater than the average height of the day. The fact that he was continuously surrounded by these taller soldiers contributed to the rumors that Napoleon was quite short. As the victories racked up, the Directory became more and more fearful of Napoleon's reputation. Their most immediate fear was that the emotionally distraught Napoleon might return to Paris with his army in order to personally fetch his wife. Thus, the five-man government exerted maximum pressure on Josephine, to join her husband on campaign. A close friend wrote that Josephine wept as though she were going to a torture chamber instead of Italy to reign as a sovereign. She brought with her six carriages, her pug Fortune, and her lover Hippolyte Charles. Upon her arrival 18 days later, Napoleon was informed about the true nature of the relationship between Josephine and Hippolyte. But rather than execute the man, he merely sent him away with a meaningless task to complete, which would keep him far away from his wife. He wasn't granted time for a honeymoon, which might rekindle their romantic relationship. The directory continued pushing him to send them the wealth of Florence, Rome, and Naples. 
but failure in southern Germany by the first of the three French prongs meant that Austrian reinforcements had begun arriving daily to put pressure on Napoleon's forces holding Milan. The inevitable Austrian counteroffensive began on July 29th, seeking to trap Napoleon against the already besieged city of Mantua. Rather than concentrating the Austrian forces, however, their commander split them into three units, allowing Napoleon to take them on one by one. Despite three more victories, the Directory was still delaying handing him the reinforcements which he had requested. Eventually, his skill ran out, and the ever-victorious army was defeated on November 12th outside Verona. His pleas became more desperate as he beseeched the Directory to support him, informing them that we are on the verge of losing Italy. Referring to someone with just their first name is one of the greatest honors bestowed upon our heroes. We know exactly who someone is talking about when they say the names of Cher, Pele, or Prince. Three days after his defeat to Verona, a battle began that offered history an opportunity for Napoleon to shed his last name of Bonaparte forever. From the onset, the Battle of Arcoli Bridge appeared to be an exact reenactment of Lodi, with the Austrian forces well entrenched along the opposite side of the riverbank. Despite being heavily outnumbered, Napoleon was determined to cross the bridge and push the Austrians back. Rather than hanging around the artillery, however, Bonaparte charged into the midst of the fray on the bridge. I will let Napoleon himself recap the day's events. The general recalls that, I determined to try a last effort in person. I seized a flag, rushed on the bridge, and there planted it. The column I commanded had reached the middle of the bridge, when the flashing fire and the arrival of a division of the enemy frustrated the attack. The grenadiers at the head of the column, finding themselves abandoned by the rear, hesitated but being hurried away in the flight, they persisted in keeping possession of their general. They seized me by the arm and by my clothes and dragged me along with them amidst the dead, dying, and the smoke. I was precipitated in a morass in which I sank up to the middle, surrounded by the enemy. The grenadiers perceived that their general was in danger. A cry was heard of forward soldiers to save the general. The brave men immediately turned back, ran upon the enemy, drove him beyond the bridge, and I was saved. Napoleon may not be the most reliable of narrators, however, particularly when it comes to his own grandeur. His brother recounts the bridge incident in slightly less heroic terms, stating that Napoleon grabbed the French tricolor flag to lead the charge, but fell into a dike as he ran along the causeway through the marshes towards the bridge. Joseph also claims that Napoleon would have drowned had he not pulled him out of the swamp. Still another account, this time by a Polish officer, claims that Napoleon did indeed raise the standard on the bridge, but rather than fall in momentary defeat, he stopped mid-battle to berate his men for cowardice. 
two things are clear about the day. First, Napoleon survived, and secondly, the Austrians held the bridge. The French had to build a pontoon bridge further down the river in order to cross. Once they had, however, the Austrians abandoned their position. Only upon later inspection after the crossing was the battle declared a French victory, as Napoleon had merely lost 4,500 of his men in exchange for 7,000 Austrian lives. For the time being, Milan was again safe from the Austrians. On November 29th, the Directory sent General Henry Clark to Italy as their special representative. The report that Clark sent back finally relieved the concerns that the Directory had privately held from the moment that they had appointed the upstart Napoleon as general. Clark wrote that everyone here regards him as a man of genius. He is feared, loved, and respected in Italy. I believe that he is attached to the Republic and without any ambition save to retain the reputation he has won. Now we, of course, have the gift of hindsight, but this statement allowed the Directory to let go of their fears. Their suspicions of the little corporal couldn't be sustained based upon the credible evidence of both his loyalty and his brilliance. The next time he asked for reinforcements, they were dispatched with urgency. McLinn tells us that at this point in time, Napoleon was given carte blanche in Italy. Confident that he finally had the proper backing of the Directory, Napoleon returned his focus to the stubborn siege of Mantua. His pressure campaign brought the city to the brink of starvation, down to a mere three days left of food. Left with no choice, the Austrian garrison leader entered into negotiations with whom he assumed was an aide of the little corporal. It wasn't until Napoleon began to write in the margins of the terms offered that it was revealed that the garrison leader was personally dealing with the leader of the French. The fall of the city opened a world of possibilities. An invasion path was now open to the Austrian capital of Vienna. The Papal States of Italy were likewise ready to be plundered. But Napoleon's eye was on a greater prize one that had been claimed by the heroes of his boyhood, Caesar and Alexander. It was at this point that Napoleon began to dream of conquering Constantinople. But to complete such a task, he would have to first claim the port city of Venice. The Pope had to be dealt with first. Although many members of the Directory desired the fall of the Catholic ruler, Napoleon accepted terms that saw 30 million transferred to the French accounts. When taken to task for his willingness to negotiate, Napoleon argued that the Pope was a unique stabilizing force in central Italy. Thus, a pacified Pope was of more use than a dead one. The choice was a wise one, as Napoleon's armies never faced a widespread rebellion by the Italians that he conquered which is a minor miracle considering that his was a foreign army that lived off the land and looted any valuables that weren't nailed down. 
Well, that last part isn't quite true, as Napoleon employed art experts to identify the most valuable pieces of fine art. There are even a few instances where the French cut out entire walls that contained masterpieces. Having pacified the Pope, he next chose to deal with the Austrians. Desiring peace, Napoleon offered terms for a ceasefire. The deal would recognize France's gains in Italy as legitimate, while allowing the Habsburgs to maintain a small foothold in northern Italy. The deal was accepted as the Austrians had found no solution when it came to the upstart little corporal. Without anyone breathing down his back, he next turned towards his Constantinople goal, setting his sights on the canal-ridden Venice as part of his campaign to expand French territory and exert his dominance over Italy. The city, which had been ruled by the Austrian Empire for over a century, was seen as a key obstacle to French ambitions in the region. By May, the French had reached Venice and began their assault on the city. The Venetian forces, now abandoned by the Austrians, had already been weakened by years of neglect and underfunding. They were no match for the French army. The city was bombarded with artillery fire, and the Venetian defenses quickly crumbled. As the French entered the city, they embarked on a campaign of mass looting and destruction, one that historians would refer to as the Rape of Venice. The famous horses of St. Mark's Basilica, which had been a symbol of Venetian power for centuries, were taken to be displayed as war trophies in Paris. Each of the four works of art weighed more than 1,800 pounds. Historian Andrea de Robillant tells us that the French treated the Venetians with contempt appropriating the city's art and culture and leaving little behind but destruction and decay. The French forces looted palaces, museums, and private collections, taking anything of value that they could find. The cost of the conquest was high, both in terms of lives lost and cultural heritage destroyed. Historian Frederick Schneed notes that the conquest of Venice cost the French army nearly 2,000 men, while the city itself suffered massive damage to its infrastructure and cultural treasures. The people of Venice were left to pick up the pieces in the aftermath of the French conquest. The city, once a bustling hub of trade and culture, was reduced to a shadow of its former self with many of its most valuable treasures taken by the French and never returned. The Coalition of Masters Scholars on Material Culture discusses the unique effect that looting of this variety has upon a community, writing, as art presents a physical representation of nationality, and this in turn is an extension of the individual, the theft of this material culture is interpreted as an attack on the citizens themselves. While art provides a physical and transportable object within which heritage and by extension national identity is stored and displayed, it nonetheless also exudes and absorbs these same intangible concepts. Professor of International Law Wayne Sanholtz 
discusses this topic in terms of the intangible essence that material culture emanates. The aura of these culturally significant objects gives it a place in and power over identity. Thus, their essence is consumed and subsequently emanated by the body, or in this case, the nation of France. He writes, that by appropriating and carrying home the greatest artistic and cultural artifacts of the defeated, the winners in war thus symbolically absorbed lesser cultures. Quoting historian Hugh Trevor Roper, Sandholtz goes on to describe the absorption of this intangible heritage and its linked prestige. Trevor Roper provides a striking visualization to the consumption of heritage at the hands of conquering nations, claiming that nation-states plunder like cannibals, who by devouring parts of their enemies think thereby to acquire their mana, the intangible source of their strength. Having accomplished the Veni, Vidi, and Vici portion of the Italian campaign, Napoleon next saw that he and his men were well rewarded for their actions. His ego received its just due in October of 1797 when the Directory presented the Army of Italy with an inscribed flag, detailing that it had taken 150,000 prisoners, 170 enemy standards, 540 cannon and howitzers, five pontoon trains, nine gunships of the line, 12 frigates, 18 galleys. Not written on the flag were the hundreds of pieces of priceless art by Italian Renaissance masters such as Raphael, Leonardo, and Michelangelo. How was he able to do it? While his historical record assures him a place among the world's greatest generals, Napoleon's success came down more to inspiration than anything else. McLinn boils his accomplishments down to four factors. Technology, the effects of the French Revolution, the superior morale of his men, and his own genius as a tactician and strategist. Let's support my statement about the importance of inspiration by first arguing against McLinn's three other suggestions as to the reason behind his tremendous success in Italy. First, the historian offers technology. The French had modernized their cannons, but the European United Front that was arrayed against them had as well. What helped the French more than anything was that Napoleon understood the value that artillery presented. Having come up through artillery school, he was well-versed with the cannon's capabilities, as well as their limitations. His favorite tactic was to blow massive vertical lines through the ranks of the soldiers lined up against him. This artificially separated the opposing forces, creating gaps which Napoleon then sent rushing cavalry in to exploit. This gap strategy was exceptionally similar to the ones exploited by the Mongols in their chisel formation. Thus, while technology was relatively even, Napoleon utilized his in a more successful manner. Where there was new technology, such as observational hot air balloons and an early prototype of a submarine, 
Napoleon remained uninterested. The second of McLean's suggestions is the effects of the French Revolution. The revolution had allowed Napoleon to rise far above his birth station. It also enabled his key lieutenants to rise to positions of power where he could call on them. While the Directory certainly cared about spreading the revolution's ideals, Napoleon quickly realized that the men's morale was highest when they got paid. Take a look at how many of us work at jobs that we don't believe in, and you can quickly realize that money regularly trumps ideals. Napoleon did give voice to those ideals within his speeches to the men with whom he remained shockingly able to identify soldiers by their individual first names. But he bound his troops to him through the implicit promise that he would always look away when they lined their pockets with stolen loot. Fearful of running afoul of the equally corrupt directory, Napoleon boldly claimed that he emerged from Italy with only his paycheck. In reality, he laundered at least one million through his brother Joseph, who post-Italy would purchase a number of absurdly expensive properties throughout Paris's most posh districts. Experts believe that only one-fifth of the loot that was taken in France's name made it back to the offices of the directory. Believing that shared success would enrich them, Napoleon's men fought with precision, fully buying into their leader's every command. This buying was absolutely critical to his success as a key pillar of Napoleon's war strategy being rapid movement. His men weren't slowed down by baggage trains and only carried three days' worth of rations while the Austrians were burdened with nine days per soldier. At one point during the campaign, the little corporal's men fought three battles and marched 54 miles in a mere 120 hours. The Corsican knew how his opponents thought and exploited it, oftentimes stopping his soldiers close enough to the battlefield so that they would be spotted, but far enough away that his opponent would assume that the attack would come in two days. The French, however, would then march double time throughout the night in order to arrive in time to begin the engagement a full day before the enemy's preparations had been set. These marches were intricately planned and had to be precise. He would split his forces so that they could approach from multiple directions at a quicker pace. Rather than waiting for all of his forces to assemble together, Napoleon would engage the enemy with what he had sometimes waiting a full 24 hours before the remainder of his forces would arrive, often to the surprise of the enemy who had already committed his reserves without knowing that Napoleon had his own reinforcements headed to the battlefield from an unexpected direction. McLean explains that time and again Napoleon defeated overall superior numbers by gaining local numerical superiority. He had a genius for finding the hinge or joint between two or sometimes even three different enemy armies. He would then concentrate his forces, crash through the hinge, and interpose himself between two armies. Having selected which enemy force he would deal with first, 
Napoleon deployed two-thirds of his forces against the chosen victim, while the other third pinned the other enemy army, usually launching assaults that looked like a prelude to a full-scale attack. Careful not to fall for his own traps, Napoleon followed the maxim that a commander ought to always be able to answer the question, if the enemy appears unexpectedly on my right or on my left, what should I do? In his line of work, paranoia can be a lifesaver. But for all of his success in the Italian campaign, McLinn tells us that for all his military genius, Napoleon was never a commander in the same league as Alexander, Hannibal, or Chamberlain. This is because his tactics were more practical than theoretical. In fact, throughout the campaign, the little corporal never deviated from his basic military principles. Principles which were created by other men and merely studied by Napoleon. McLinn sums up his strategy as keeping lines of communication open at all times, providing a clear military objective without secondary distractions always remain on the attack. Have four big artillery guns for every thousand men that you were to engage. Concentrate your forces. Focus on speed and outflank the enemy. None of these concepts were invented by Napoleon. The truth is that he was just better at executing the strategy than his opposition were. Napoleon himself wrote that at this point in his career, he had fought 60 battles and learned nothing with which he did not know at the beginning. After conquering and looting the entire peninsula, the question inevitably revolved around what's next. The Directory and Napoleon were clearly at odds here. Napoleon was putting in place measures that would encourage the fractured Italian kingdoms to consolidate into one nation. He worked behind the scenes to merge conquered kingdoms, ensuring that they passed constitutions to solidify their internal bonds. A pacified Italy would offer him the opportunity to pursue his dream of following Alexander's footsteps. Paris, however, thought that Italy was far too backwards to ever become a Republican ally. They figured that the loot was enough, and continued involvement only risked further antagonizing Austria, the only nation that thus far had managed to give them pause. Things changed for everyone in May of 1797, as new elections in Paris shifted the center of power to the right. New legislatures began to ask questions regarding a foreign policy that boiled down to Loot everything that you can. Napoleon had his own misgivings regarding the results. Having enjoyed the trappings of power, he was concerned about both the new and incumbent legislatures, writing that, I have tasted authority and I will not give it up. I have decided that if I cannot be the master, I will leave France. But it's too early now. The fruit is not yet ripe. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. 
If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.